Thanks for listening to Bullseye. Have you heard Up First, the morning news podcast from NPR? Give us 10 minutes or so. You get a sense of the stories and big ideas of the day. It's the news you need to get through this day. Wake up with Up First tomorrow morning by 6 a.m. Eastern Time on the NPR One app and wherever you listen to podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Look, it's just one of those things. You live in a big city long enough, pretty much any big city. You or somebody you know is going to get jumped. Moshe Kasher's been jumped. He grew up in Oakland, just across the bay from where I grew up. He used to kind of wear it as a badge of pride. Going through something like that sort of built character. It actually took him a pretty long time to realize that wasn't true. I, these kids moved to the Bay Area from San Diego, like, I don't know, 15 years ago. There were some friends of mine, and they got robbed at gunpoint. And they were like, uh-uh, we're out of here. And they moved back to San Diego the next day. And I remember me and all my friends, my Oakland friends, were like laughing at these like dorky, cowardly white boys. Like, uh, these pathetic punks. They moved back because of a robbery at gunpoint? It's like, welcome to the game, dude. And then I realize now as a 37-year-old man, like, uh, nope, they were right. <laughs> Getting robbed at gunpoint is a very bad thing, and it should frighten you, and it's not okay to not to be into that. It's bullseye. Coming up, I'll talk with Moshe about his life growing up in Oakland. He's got a new TV show, too. It's called Problematic. On it, Moshe takes on current, controversial, and sometimes uncomfortable issues in front of a live audience. And I'm saying this as a totally sincere compliment. The show is basically a 2017 version of Donahue. And like Phil Donahue, Moshe isn't afraid to stir the pot a little bit. I don't like orthodoxy. I don't care for fundamentalism. In even when it agrees with and bolsters my position. Then I'll talk with Brother Ali. He's a rapper from Minneapolis. His new record is called All the Beauty in This Whole Life. He says that in turbulent times, he wants to focus his life on something bigger than himself. Trying to connect with something that's pre-modern, that reminds us of what the meaning of life is about, is this draw that like, I think that we all have and I personally have found that with Islam. But Islam is very insistent on recognizing the other spiritual traditions as being valid. Plus, actress Felicia Day, in the new Mystery Science Theater 3000, tells us why the British TV show The Mighty Boosh should be an inspiration to all of us. And finally, I'll tell you about the kids' book that taught me more about dreams than I'd ever learned in some dumb psychology school or whatever. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My first guest, Moshe Kasher. Moshe's been a stand-up comic for the last 16 years. You've seen him on Fallon, on Conan. He was a regular on Chelsea Lately. Now he's got his own TV show. Problematic with Moshe Kasher. It's on Comedy Central right now. Like a lot of shows nowadays, it's got a comedian taking on the issues of the day talking with newsmakers. He's explored cultural appropriation on the show, technology, Islamophobia. But there's something really intriguing in the show's format. He talks with experts and everyday people, and the result is this really frank and insightful conversation about things that we might otherwise be scared to talk about. 
Moshe had a pretty rough childhood. He grew up in Oakland. He got kicked out of a bunch of schools. He did hard drugs for a while, was in and out of institutions, went into rehab. He talks about that in his autobiography, Casher in the Rye. Here's a clip from Problematics Pilot, where he talks a little bit about that. Now, growing up in Oakland, I spent my entire teenage life trying to be down. And yeah, I know what I look like, but trust me, if you had seen me back in the day, you'd be like, damn, this dude is super confused about who he is, his racial identity, and the appropriateness of white people using the N-word. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I used to use the N-word. With an uh, not an er. Very important distinction. I was one of those white kids. I'm not proud of it, but again, that was before it was bad. I mean, okay, it was always bad, but it was not bad, bad. It was a time when a white dude could say the N-word. You know, actually, can you just throw up my list of excuses? Okay, look, look, look. I changed, thank God. I don't say the N-word anymore because I grew up, and also because my friend Larry threw me up against the fence and told me he'd beat my ass if I ever said it again. Thank you, Larry. You, my... The conversation around... <laughs> Moshe Kasher, welcome back to Bullseye. It's good to see you, buddy. Nice to be back. How you doing, Jesse? I'm doing okay. I was talking to somebody uh, last night at a comedy show. I said, you know, I, I'm getting up tomorrow morning. I'm going to go talk to Moshe Kasher. Do you know Moshe? And he said, oh, yeah, sure. Moshe's great. And I said, I, I was trying to decide whether I should mention that the first time I saw Moshe perform, it's maybe 10 years ago, maybe more than 10 years ago now, 12 years ago in Oakland um, on our mutual friend Brent Weinbach's show, uh, I thought to myself, Christ, who is this? Mm, you're not you're not the first or the second. So that's what, he, that's what the person I was talking to, he says, I don't think anyone has ever not had that reaction to motion <laughs> cashers. Well, thanks for the delightful intro, Jesse. <laughs> I think I'm a really likable guy. <laughs> But, like, when you're a stand-up comedian, yeah, one of the things, which you've been for quite a long time, you're a very successful stand-up comedian, one of the things that you learn to deal with and play with is what the audience assumes about you the second you walk on stage, right? Did you think, who's this before I started talking or during my Dur While you were talking. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> it's not really about assumptions. It's really about an analysis of the material. <laughs> That makes me wonder what joke I was uh, telling at the time. But yes, you do deal with expectations. You were sure. you were sitting on you were sitting on a stool and your legs were crossed and you were telling us a few things. <laughs> you were letting us know a few things. Oh, sure. I love to let people know a few things. Although I don't sit on stage anymore. Um, but uh, that is like a big part of what you do as a stand-up comedian because you get so little time. Often, you know, often you're you're talking for five minutes or ten minutes. And so you have to deal with what people assume about you or think about you the second you open your mouth. Um, what have you learned about what people think about you when you walk on stage? Well, you know, it has changed over the years because I've physically changed. And and I know you're a big fashion plate. Also, my style so has are, changed. So are you. You're I am. One yeah. of the best dressed guys in comedy. Thank you very much. Although the bar is modest. The bar modest is not distinction. a bar. <laughs> yeah. Um, the bar is not a bar. It's a liquor store on the corner <laughs> where you buy a 40. But um, I used to deal and interact a lot with the with the assumption that uh, I looked or acted gay. And first of all, I like the, the notion of acting gay because it's an inherent flaw. There is no such thing. I, and that's a, a bit that I have in my act currently. But the idea that we all do this fun game where you look at a person and you assume 
their sexual orientation based on the way that they're acting. But really what you're looking at is them acting feminine or, or not or masculine or not. You can't really act gay as, you know, gay is one thing. It's a, if you look down at the end of your genitals, if there's someone of the same sex, yeah, that's a gay situation, <laughs> et cetera. It goes on for a while. But um, so that was a big part of the early years was that assumption. But um, I used to have a bit, actually speaking of manipulating expectations, I used to actually have a bit that was dependent on the audience laughing at me before I started to speak. And it happened organically. One time, some, you know, the audience started laughing at me just because of the way I looked. And I, you know, I wrote this sort of response to that on the fly, like, oh, thank you very much for the preliminary laugh at my physical appearance. I appreciate that. That's how I know the show is going to go well. When you start laughing, none of the jokes I wrote, but the body I was cursed with, go (laughs) yourself. (laughs) And then, so it was this fun way of, you know, starting a show and, you know, already setting every, all of the, the terms of engagement are clear, you know, oh, this guy's a jerk, but he really is a self-effacing jerk. A lot of this is about, is about defensiveness. He knows how he looks, blah, blah, blah. And what would happen was over time, I would start like, I needed that preliminary laugh and not every audience would give it to me. And especially as style started to change, like I started looking less and less weird. I started looking more and more regular. So I would have to, I no longer do the joke, but I'd have to kind of like, you know, really weird, of, weird it up. When oh, yeah. Stage. Just like, kind of like walk with great, great Yee. neurotic purpose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Push your, push your finger, your eyeglasses up on your nose. And at a certain point, be like, all right, guys, come on, just laugh at me, please. So we can start the show. <laughs> I feel like one of the things that comedian brains tend to do is search for uh, contradictions and search for hypocrisies. Yeah. And that has some value. Definitely has value. It definitely has value, but it also can be a difficult and unpleasant way to lead life. And it can also lead away from affirmative behavior of looking towards what actually does make the world better or what is making the world better. I wonder how you deal with that on your show because your show is is in a broad genre of shows where comedians have difficult First Amendment discussions about the sure. problems of the world and say what other people are afraid to say, but they make it hilarious. You know what I mean? Yeah. When we started developing this show, the, sh- the show didn't exist. And all of a sudden, now we're on the air and there's like four shows like it. Like Kamau did his show. Uh, w. Kamau Bell. Uh, w. Kamau Bell comic. did his show, The United Shades of America, which is dealing with race in that way. Then Sarah Silverman announced that she has a show that's coming out where she's talking to people that disagree with her. And there's a, a number of other examples of this kind of show on the landscape. And the question is, of course, like, why? Why is this happening? It's obvious, right, that we're living in these extreme levels of of bifurcation, right, where people are literally living on different universal realities, right? Like I've done some podcasts that are like, you know, known for being uh, testing the limits of free speech. And then when I get on there, me, a progressive who's thought a lot about some of this stuff, I'm not a I'm not an intellectual. I'm just a comedian that's a, that has progressive politics. And you see the comment stream is just like, shut up, you liberal idiot, you idiot, you idiot. And it's like, it's like, oh, did you need me to to agree with you in order to listen to this? Because I like listening to podcasts and, and talks by people that vehemently disagree with me. On the other hand, the left is doing it too, right? It's like I have people in my, in my community that I came up with in the Bay Area, I'm sure you do too, who's the new sort of paradigm is – no, don't let these people speak. Chase them out of town. I don't like orthodoxy. 
I don't care for fundamentalism in even when it agrees with and bolsters my position. I think that's what I find so so inherently distasteful about the current contemporary political climate is that everyone is accusing e- the other side of hypocrisy and then they get they get accused of the same hypocrisy and it affects their point zero. Like when Richard Spencer got punched, right? And I wasn't into it. I wasn't not. I mean, look, obviously, there's some sort of Schadenfreude. 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 I tried to avoid uh, speaking German correctly, mm-hmm. uh, both because of, you know, right. the one history and also because of the Yiddish history. Right. So he and the other people in, in, the, in the alt-right were you know, wanted and they were doing these like hilarious like, you know, SVU, you know, deconstructions of the eye. And we figured out who it is and the Antifa guy exposed and we got it, you know, and they were like raising a bounty to find this person. And, you know, they wanted this person because they were like, you've punched someone. Then comes the Berkeley riot. Right. Where this, you know, alt-right Nazi boy punches an 80 pound girl and the whole alt-right just explodes and like cheer like our hero. He's punched someone. And it's like the immediacy of that hypocrisy was so transparent to me. By the way, the left is exactly the same. Right. They were like, we punched him. We punched Richard Spencer. Ha ha. You got punched. And then the moment one of their people gets punched, it's like, you punched someone. It's like oh, yeah. I got punched one time. I was just walking down the street because the guy had the same jacket on as me. <laughs> I just didn't like I said, that. I said, hey, nice jacket. He just punched me. Man, that is a bad. I, I've been punched a lot. I mean, that's some Bay Area stuff right yeah. there. I mean, that's, <laughs> I, yeah, I got, I've been punched so many times. Bay and, boys know about getting punched. Yeah, especially you're a, a white boy. You're going to get punched. It's going to happen. I, I, I swear, by the way, I, these kids moved to the Bay Area from San Diego like, I don't know, 15 years ago. There were some friends of mine and they got robbed at gunpoint and they were like, uh-uh, we're out of here. And they moved back to San Diego the next day. And I remember me and all my friends, my Oakland friends, were like laughing at these like dorky cowardly white boys like uh, these pathetic <laughs> punks they move back because of a robbery at gunpoint it's like welcome to the game dude and then i realize now as a 37 year old man like uh nope they were right <laughs> <laughs> getting robbed at gunpoint is a very bad thing and it should frighten you and it's not okay <laughs> to not to be into that I want to play a, a clip from my guest Moshe Kasher's new show, Problematic, on Comedy Central. You did an episode about the ways that technology is affecting our lives. And this is a staple of news entertainment television. It has been for 15 years. Are we all just losing ourselves in our phones or whatever, right? And both of your parents, uh, your late father and your mother, uh, are in word deaf. Um, and you talked to your mom about the way that technology has affected her life, which is to say mostly positively. What you'll hear in this clip is a voiceover interpreter interpreting your conversation with your mom in uh, ASL in sign language. And when you were young and you wanted to, like, call a friend, how would you do that? I would actually have to ask my mom to call my friend's mom and set up an appointment for the two of us to hang out. And then we'd drive 30 miles or something to go meet my friend. Right, so now you can finally just call her. Right, I could do that right now. Hi, I can't talk. I'm on TV doing an interview with Moshe. Look, 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 here's my best friend. So then I decided, you know what, I'm going to get a cochlear implant, one of those robotic ears. And that really changed my life. 
You ever see those videos of deaf people turning on their cochlear implants for the first time and everybody gets all emotional? Like, I realize we never got a chance to do that and I've always been kind of disappointed. Do you think we could try it? Okay. Okay, now, uh, fake turn it on. Hey, Mom. Is Mom? that your voice? It's my voice. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh. <laughs> I can't believe that's your voice. I think that one of the most interesting things about it is that we so rarely have any representation of disabled people on television, whatever the disability, whatever the physical disability might be particularly, um, that it is just immediately vivid to see someone living with a disability uh, on TV at all. Like just just the, the, a, a person with a physical disability is represented on television is a huge deal because – you know, outside of a legacy of mockery of people's physical disabilities, once we decided we probably shouldn't do that, many of us decided that, the answer generally was, okay, well, let's just not have them in it. Yeah, well, we, we do a thing where we forget, where we willfully forget the disabled. I do it too, by the way. Deafness is, it's so easy to use deafness because deafness is the easiest, has the lowest barrier to entry. Deaf people seem cool and they have this beautiful language and, you know, they're awesome. And we know Marley Matlin, you know, and that's cool. But once it starts getting ugly, it becomes more difficult. I'm really hoping to get more episodes because I – not because I want to, like, eat more fame, but uh -huh. because I really like doing the show because each each topic really excites me. And there are topics that I haven't done yet that I want to do. And one of them, I want to make the moral case for prostitution. And the reason that that one really stuck out in my brain is because I heard this radio show a long time ago. It's very difficult to find. I don't even remember the name of it. It's like deep in the radio annals about sex workers that work with the severely disabled. And it was the kind of show – and first of all, the reporter was himself severely disabled. He had Lou Gehrig. And he himself I think had taken advantage of these sex workers or – I'm not positive. At any rate, it became very apparent like there are people – out there that are severely, severely disabled to the degree that not only will, will probably no one be sexual with them, if we're being honest and blunt, but they also can't even pleasure themselves. They don't even have the ability to masturbate. They're so severely disabled. And this radio reporter made this really profound statement, which is what we do as non-disabled people is we assume that they don't have a libido. I came away from it going with an ambivalence about sex work and at the end of it, I was like, oh, at least some of these people are absolute heroes. I mean, straight up, there is no moral qualm you could possibly have for what they're doing. I like that because it does throw a stone at orthodoxy and, and ideological orthodoxy. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Moshe Kasher. His new TV series, Problematic, is airing right now on Comedy Central. One of the things that you do, Moshe, on your show, Problematic, is wade into the audience. Yeah. It reminded me that the thing that your show is most like, you know, I, you're thinking like, oh, he has a little monologue at the top, a topical monologue. This is like a John Oliver or Daily Show type show where you're like, oh, he's got a panel of comedians making jokes about issues. Maybe it's a Chelsea Handler type show. But what – it is most like is Donahue. 
Yeah. Like what it is most like is 1980s daytime television. Yeah. By Before every episode was about a paternity test, when only like <laughs> one in 10 episodes was about right. a paternity test. Yes. It, that was definitely by design. And it is the most, if I'm being honest, beyond the ego parts, it's the most challenging part of the show. In tonight's episode, or not tonight, I don't know when this airs, but in the Islamophobia episode, we, I feel like, finally got to a synergy with the with the crowd. There are some real interesting situations happening with the crowd where, you know, people were adding to the conversation. And we also did a thing in the Islamophobia episode that I would like to expand and continue to do, which is that we solicited questions from our online audience. So the Islamophobia episode, there are some very pointed questions about, you know, the, the link between Islam and violence and uh, Muslim leaders, you know, being anti-gay and, and anti-trans and, you know, real questions that are very uncomfortable. And what's cool about getting video submissions for those questions is that the immediacy of the camera is not affecting people's vibe. Let's hear a clip from, I guess, Moshe Kasher's show Problematic uh, and the episode about Islamophobia. So in this clip, you're playing back some comments that uh, former Fox News personality Bill O'Reilly had to say about Muslims. Tonight on Problematic, a breezy conversation on every American's favorite mixed company topic, Islamophobia. Now, here's how Islam is portrayed by our nation's top religious studies expert. So the problems in the Muslim world are not just caused by individuals. They run much deeper than that, from wealthy Islamists funding al-Qaeda and ISIS to Sharia law being used to abuse women on a massive scale. Yeah, ironic, coming from the only man in the world who women should wear a burqa around. <laughs> Do you have to control your urge to mock and I say that as somebody – I've known you for a long time and you're as, you're as good a mocker yes. as there is. Like you're, you're an incredibly quick wit and can be very sharp. Whether you mean it or not, you enjoy the idea of finding something to prick and prick sure. it, uh -huh. right? And, but you're the host of a show and the show is in part about listening and obviously, mockery often shuts down. <laughs> Absolutely. That. Yeah. So, do you have to work to not? Yes, for sure. I will tell you one thing that I is I am flawed regarding hosting is that I often find myself taking bait that I shouldn't be taking in the position that I'm in, and, it, and it's something that I'm very conscious of. When I have a right leaning guest on, I will take bait that is not comedic and isn't in line with the principles of the show. And it's a, it is something that I am, I am, I'm trying to be vigilant about. You know, we had this, we have this segment that we're doing for our online component called Why Do You Exist? Or How Do You Exist? Where I interview people like, why are you here? Like, your identity is so weird, you know? Like, we had a trans conservative Jew, a transgendered conservative Jew. How do you exist? Okay, now, I had a very easy time having that conversation. But then there was a Latina f who supports the wall. And I found myself disappointed in this conversation because I kept, like, getting into an ideological conversation about why the wall is a bad idea. And that wasn't what the conversation was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about her and how she, as a Latina woman, engages positively with the concept of Trump's immigration policies. It wasn't about me, you know, critiquing Trump's immigration policies. So that's something I have to watch out for. I think eventually you'll become a bait master. Oh, yes. Flip, we'll flip that around and have a great time. And hopefully 
if there's anybody out there that's not able to be a bait master on their own, I'll do an episode on sex workers <laughs> who can come and master that bait themselves. <laughs> Moshe Kasher, it's always great to get to talk to you, and I, I, I've really enjoyed watching your show. So uh, thanks so much for coming by, and congratulations. Thank you for having me. It's always good to have an old-school Bay Area homeboy around and in my life. That's real. We repping the yay. Yeah, we stay repping the yay. Comedian Moshe Kasher. His show Problematic airs Tuesdays at midnight on Comedy Central. He's also the author of the wonderful memoir Kasher in the Rye, which is one of the best comedian's books I have ever read. For real. It's so great. It's called Kasher in the Rye. More bullseye in a bit. Got Brother Ali coming up. Plus, Felicia Day tells us about the transformative power of the BBC show The Mighty Boosh. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. We'd like to say a quick thank you and share a message from one of our sponsors, AT&T's Audience Network, in their new original series, Fearless, with Tim Ferriss. Ferris is an author, entrepreneur, and podcaster who spends his life asking questions and scouring the globe for answers. Now he's sitting down with renowned performers to dissect strategies to succeed. Premieres May 30th on Audience. Watch Fearless with Tim Ferriss on DirecTV, UVerse, or stream on DirecTV now. Hi, this is Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. This month marks Fresh Air's 30th anniversary as a daily NPR interview program. That means our show is older than two of the people who work on it. So how are we celebrating? By doing more shows. You can find our podcast on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Felicia Day is a comedian. She's an actress. She's kind of a legend in the worlds of nerdy comedy stuff. She had a recurring spot on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She worked with Will Wheaton. She's also created and starred in her own web series called The Guild. Now she has a big part in one of the most anticipated reboots ever, Mystery Science Theater 3000, The Return. She plays King of Forrester, the show's main villain. She stars alongside her henchman, Max, played by Patton Oswalt. The new show's premise basically follows the old one. She and Max have captured Jonah Heston, played by Jonah Ray. Their mission, drive Jonah insane by forcing him to watch really bad movies. Here's a little bit of the show's first episode. The new MST3K isn't about ideas or making things. It's about sheer star power, starting with your experiment today, Reptilicus. Somehow Denmark thought they could make a giant monster movie. (laughs) Max, tell them a few of the big celebrity names in the film. (laughs) Only uh, legendary Danish comic actor Dirk Passer. Wow. (laughs) And? He's, He's the only one. You've got to talk about the way we choose these movies. Yeah? Yeah, okay. Whatever, whatever. Felicia's great on MST3K. Funny, kind of sadistic. For somebody like Felicia, who's worked in so many different genres and also originated so many projects herself, it kind of makes you wonder where she got the drive to do all that stuff. Her answer, a weird BBC show called The Mighty Boosh. So The Mighty Boosh is, it's a musical comedy duo act that started as a stage play and it turned into from the stage play a sitcom and uh it's very out of the box it's a musical comedy about this 
sort of loving, hating relationship between the two of them and uh, mixed with the surreal, definitely the surreal. Come with us now on a journey through time and space. To the world of the magical. So the first time I watched The Mighty Boosh was during a nervous breakdown I was having. And I rented a house up the coast in California for 10 days. And I really catatonically stared at the sea to figure out who I was again. And accompanying me on that trip was the complete Mighty Boosh collection. And the first season is about a zoo and them working at a zoo, which is kind of a standard sitcom setup. But the deeper you get into the first season and then the second and third, um, things just completely change. But a couple of the characters um, lead you through this maze of ridiculousness accompanied by song in the most bizarre way imaginable. And as I was trying to find myself through uh, this vacation, um, being able to dive into something that was so incredibly joyous and out of the box really helped sort of heal my brain in a way by laughter. The show exemplifies that kind of spontaneous out-of-the-box joy in all the characters, but especially the secondary characters. I mean, there is a gorilla who is part of the cast and a main character. And um, one of the other main characters is Naboo, who is a very quirky actor who plays a fortune teller in that um, if you ever see a fortune telling machine, he's come to life. And he's actually in the fortune telling machine for a majority of uh, of some of the show and then end up, you know, coming out into the world a lot more. There's a puppet in the alley in a scene, I think in uh, season three, where it's a crack fox. It's a fox who's addicted to crack. He has a den in the back. And it's just there is nothing so ridiculous. But the way that they bring their world together, the worldview is so unique that you believe absolutely anything that is thrown at you. And at the heart of it, it's a relationship between two people, one grumpy, one just flamboyantly rich and life living and their relationship. And it's just um, embodies everything about what I do on the Internet, which is surprise, spontaneity, and just doing whatever it is that your creative impulse tells you, not having the business gatekeepers tell you that that's not what people would like. Don't think Horace is going to be able to make it tonight, so I'm freed up. What time are the girls coming? Yeah, the thing is, these are goth girls, so there might be a bit of a problem. Why? Well, you're going to have to get a bit dark, like me. Like you? You're the least dark person I've ever met. You're like candy floss. You cut me out and I'm made of blackjacks. You're fruit salad, Vince. Everyone knows that. It's not Vince. I've changed my name. What? It's Obsidian now. Obsidian? Yeah, Obsidian Blackbird McKnight. Whatever. Inside, I'm darker than you, yeah? There's a dark poetry to me, yes, sir. Yeah, well, you can blag all that internal stuff. I'm talking about the look, you know? I mean, what are we going to do with your hair? What's wrong with it? It's a bit thin, isn't it? It's not thin, it's fine. Oh, you're not joking. Can't even feel it. It's like brown smoke. Look, my hair is soft and gentle. I get a lot of compliments about it. Girls like it. Yeah, not goth girls, though. Well, what am I going to do, then? Can you help me out? I don't know. You must have something to boost it up. Come on, you've got to be technician in hair design. All right. Look, lucky for you, there's this. Goth juice. The most powerful hairspray known to man. Made from the tears of Robert Smith. Yeah, when I was watching The Boosh, I was at a point where I had come from a very creative background. I started shooting videos in my garage with my friends and we had no expectation other than pleasing our audience. And that success sort of carried us into the business world. And the business world is 
trying to commoditize creativity. That is literally the definition of Hollywood and, and entertainment business. And I totally get that. But and, and allowing myself to sort of be not used, but following all these opportunities, I was chasing them so far that I had forgotten why I'd gotten into the business um, in the first place, creating things that surprised me, that connected with the audience, regardless of how business savvy they were in a sense. And I think that me as a person does not fit in a mold. Regardless of how successful I will be ever, I will never be happy trying to fit myself in someone else's paradigm. I would rather just be in an apartment somewhere creating art on the wall, and that would be much happier for me than being a you know multimillionaire on billboards everywhere. It just is who I am, and I always feel a sense of loss with myself when I am far from uh, creating things that give me that kind of joy of surprise. Like, I can't believe I came up with this. Maybe I was being a bit hasty there uh, when I said I didn't love you. Perhaps now in this light with you and the tutu and the water playing off your seaweed, maybe I could love you. Maybe I was lying because when you do love someone, sometimes you say you don't because you're playing hard to get, playing a game. Games? Yeah, I was just playing a game with you. Love games? That's right, love games, Greg. Love games. Do you love me? Are you playing your love games with me? I just want to know what to do because I need your love a lot. Oh, come on now. Do you love me? Are you playing your love games with me? I just want to know what to do because I need your love a lot. Oh, come on now. So in watching The Mighty Boosh, you know, I'm sure it wasn't on billboards everywhere in the UK, but it touched so many people in a way that made me realize, well, this is what I'm here for. They can spontaneously create something from scratch and it looks like they're playing on set and anything that occurs to them that makes them laugh, they're putting on screen. With They're not censoring themselves. The more ridiculous, the better. It actually reminded me why I do what I do and made me want to um, follow in their footsteps of creating for the joy of it, regardless of who's telling you you can do something or not. The the thing about The Mighty Boosh, and you know, I know that both the actors have gone on to do a lot of different work, but I think the chemistry between them and their working together was very inspirational because creativity in a bottle is not fun, you know, unless you're drawn to that. And it really is that collaborative process that they enhanced each other. They filled holes where they had in each other. Um, they raised each other's joy up in the process of making that show, it seemed like to me. And I think that collaboration and, and knowing that you don't have to be alone in creating um, was really inspirational to me and, you know, made me long for, um, you know, creating that sort of group thing that that brought me here and trying to get together with my friends and making something from scratch. Felicia Day on the inspirational power of The Mighty Boosh. It's a real British television comedy. If you've never seen The Mighty Boosh, you can stream it or buy it on Hulu and Amazon. You can also find it on CISO. You can catch Felicia Day in Mystery Science Theater 3000 The Return. It's streaming now on Netflix. It's great. It's really funny. So is The Mighty Boosh. They're both really great. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Next up, Brother Ali. He's a rapper based out of Minnesota. There, he's part of the Rhyme Sayers Collective, a label he shares with Aesop Rock, Dilated Peoples, and Atmosphere, among others. 
For the first part of his career, he focused a lot on making protest rap, speaking truth to power, that kind of thing. His latest record is called All the Beauty in This Whole Life. On it, he focuses on finding the beautiful things in the world, and he does it with a real honesty and openness. Ali talks about his faith a lot. He's been a Muslim since he was 15 years old. He also talks about his albinism, about how having no pigment in his skin presented a ton of totally unique challenges when he was growing up. It's a beautiful record. Ali's a beautiful guy. Let's take a listen to the first track. It's called Pen to Paper. When I was 13, I met KRS. He put me on a stage, suggested I read up on Malcolm X. I know the rest. Someone's pushing down on my chest. Both my folks got made to rest. Loved ones wishing me all the best. I'm a ball of stress, yet I digress. I spit my every hopeless dream. Brother Ali, welcome back to Bullseye. It's great to get to talk to you. Thank you so much, man. I feel like your new album comes at a time when people might be expecting protest music from you. Mm-hmm. And I wonder why your album is so much about beauty and love rather than about things you're mad about. That's a really great question. And I feel like it's it's a combination of you know, those being the things that I would like to share because that's what's that's what I feel like is missing to a large degree, or at least is missing from the conversation. Beauty is everywhere. Love is everywhere. Uh, good, you know, beautiful people are everywhere, but they're not being talked about. It's not being focused on right now. And it's so easy that, like, the regime is so outwardly, openly evil that it's really easy to just focus on that. What's perhaps more difficult to focus on is how much beauty there really is. But then also that's been my experience. So, you know, I I made some really serious protest music and then I started realizing like how easy it is for the ego to sneak in. Um, you know, and I'm involved in like, you know, social justice stuff and also spiritual stuff or religious stuff. And in both of those areas, it's really easy to lose track of the ego and the ego can come in and ruin the whole thing. And you start becoming self-righteous. You start thinking that, you know, not only is this message important, but I'm important. And I experienced that, man. Like, I, I have a lot of, like, serious ego challenges. And so I got to a point in the activism stuff where I was experiencing despair and jaded kind of, like, bitterness. And I realized, like, that completely means that the ego is trying to take over. And so I started going to the Sufi masters of, of the spirituality in Islam and just sitting with them and like, how do I get my heart right? Like, I'd love to to have some good impact on others or the world or outwardly or whatever, but that's only good. That's not going to work if my heart's not right. And so I went to the doctors of hearts, which are the Sufis and was like, help me. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm a mess. You know what I'm saying? Like, I'm, I'm jacked up and I need help. Was it hard to do that? It's hard to know that you need to do it. For me, like it's it's it's, it's difficult to peep that about myself. That like, oh, I'm not I'm not having a bad experience in this because the people aren't giving me what I th- think I deserve. It's the problem is like, what do I think I deserve? And how do I really estimate my own, you know, role or worth or whatever? It's just a, it's a focus on self. And so that's just what my last few years has been like. And when I started making this album, it was before, uh, you know, this this uh, angry little man became the leader of the free world. I was just like, man, I'm experiencing so much beauty. That's what I want to share with the world right now. So I started making this album about beauty before all of this stuff. 
And then, you know, I'm on an independent label, so it takes a long time for the music to come out. And so in that, in the interim, there's like these changes in the world. And I'm just like, so I feel really good. Like, this is what I, I feel good that I'm able to offer this to the world. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Brother Ali. His new record, All the Beauty in This Whole Life, is out now. You came to your faith partly through hip-hop, right? Yeah, definitely. KRS-One told me when I was 13, told me to read the autobiography of Malcolm X. What were you doing hanging out with KRS-One when you were 13? He gave a lecture tour at Michigan State University, and I lived in Lansing at that time. And my mom took me. (laughs) And so my mom, my very, you know, pretty blonde white lady, got to sit in this auditorium full of hip-hoppers and black power radicals and some academics. And her son, who's like looking at KRS-One, like this is the sheikh, like this is the this is dad, and hang on his every word. And then they had a question and answer portion, and so I stepped up and I had bought this book that he did with a journalist named Nelson George, called "Stop the Violence." And I I read this book and I tried to memorize every word. So I stepped up and I said, I memorized every word, not only on your albums but in this book. And I love you, and you're my teacher. And when this is over, would you sign this? And so he brought me on stage, signed my book, talked to me. And he had talked about Malcolm all through his lecture, but he said, read the autobiography of Malcolm X. And so it took a long time because I was a kid. I wasn't into reading books. I'm also legally blind, so it takes a long time to read. But that this is the book that changed my life. You have a song on your new album called Pray For Me that has a really beautiful verse about your experience of your albinism when you were a kid and the way that you and your mother managed its impact on your life. Imagine how my mama felt. Obviously, she want to offer me some kind of help. Pretty white lady never probably dealt with this particular type of hell. If she dyed my hair blonde, maybe I could blend. Get a better response, maybe even a friend. She took me to the salon, put chemicals in my head. When they took the towel off, it was purple in the end. Lot of money spent just to get me presentable. Message that is sent. The real you ain't acceptable. I know what she meant. What else could she expect to do? That was just the lens that she viewed protection through. And I wonder if you could tell me, like, how does it change your life when you're a kid that you, you know, don't see well and don't have pigment? (laughs) Yeah, it's a perfect way to say it. Yeah, and I mean, that's kind of like the defining moment. Like, I think a lot of people that are aware of me are kind of like, what the, the video doesn't match the audio. Like, why does this person look like this and is talking like this? And I I feel like that story in particular is one that really highlights it and that my mom saw the cruelty I was experiencing and wanted nothing more than to help me get out of it and help me survive it and and she wants to take it away. She was a dark-haired person, little girl, that was adopted by Norwegians. And so she dyed her hair blonde. And so that's the way that she, you know, conformed and kind of like fit in and, you know, became part of the family. So... She said to me, like, if we dye your hair blonde, then you can basically just kind of go about in school and people won't really notice it right away or something. And you can kind of at least have a grace period to try to make some friends. And um, so we tried to dye my hair blonde. It didn't work because hair dye works with the color in your hair. So my hair turned purple. And then... She takes me to this really expensive salon and they pr- finally figured it out. But it's a freaking science experiment 
to try to make me look presentable to people. And then I got to go back all the time and get it re-dyed because if my, what really grows out of my body is my dirty secret that if it were ever exposed, suddenly I'm not acceptable anymore. That's what she did because that's what's, that's her way of navigating life. But then I meet, you know, I kind of talk about this black elder woman that worked at my school and that's a real person, but she's also like symbolic in my music of all of the people that I've learned from and, you know, uh, eaten in their homes and people that have just loved me and cared for me and taught me and disciplined me and, you know, made fun of me and fought me and everything in my life. This woman basically was like, I see what you're doing. You know, we have light-skinned black people that try to pass for white and they go and they dye their hair. She actually told me Elvis Presley, though, grew up in blues and he wanted to be a blues man. He didn't want to steal the blues. He wanted to be part of the blues. And he made his hair look like that because he wanted to look like Muddy Waters. Muddy Waters has a perm, though, because he's trying to look more white. And actually, Jimi Hendrix did his hair because he was trying to look like Bob Dylan. And Bob Dylan let his hair grow because he's trying to look like Huey Newton. You know what I'm saying? So it's like this weird kind of thing. And then she said James Brown basically was the poster child for Black is Beautiful. And he came out with the afro and he stopped getting a perm. And he basically said, I'm going to be who I am. I say it loud. I'm Black and I'm proud. And he, she basically said, this is, the, this is how we get home. You, you learn how to be acceptable to yourself. And that's what Malcolm X and the Nation of Islam were saying. Be acceptable to yourself. You know, he said at the end of his life, he said, white people can help us, but we don't necessarily want them to join our this particular movement because we can't worry about being acceptable to other people until we're acceptable to ourselves. So trying to connect with something that's pre-modern, that reminds us of what the meaning of life is about is this draw that like, I think that we all have. And, you know, and I personally have found that with Islam, but Islam is very insistent on recognizing the the other spiritual traditions as being valid and that every group of people had a prophet. And all of those prophets are from this, come from the same creator. And all of those wisdom traditions are to be respected and, and to be seen as valid. And so that's what I'm on. And I know that the world, you know, a lot of people don't have access to that stuff. And so when I have a mic, it's like, man, I'm just reporting. I see myself as a reporter. These are the experiences that I've had with these people and with these ideas. And um, I just I feel honored to do it. And also I try to do I try to be dope as well. Like also I'm trying to be really good at it. We'll have more of my conversation with Brother Ali after a quick break. Don't go anywhere. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the Economic Development Authority of Fairfax County, Virginia. Here's President and CEO Jerry Gordon discussing how business can succeed in the country. Fairfax County is really a place where people can succeed and businesses can succeed regardless of where they came from, regardless of their background. All it requires is ability, perhaps a little bit of luck, and a great deal of tenacity, and you can be successful in Fairfax County. More information at fairfaxcountyeda.org. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Brother Ali in a second. But first, let's talk about Pop Rocket. It's Bullseye's sister show right here at MaximumFun.org, a fascinating, funny talk show about pop culture with some of the best brains in the game. 
And in for Guy Branham this week, the lovely Karen Tonkson is hosting. Karen, just named by LA Weekly, one of Los Angeles's 50 most fascinating people. Hey, Karen, what's popping on Pop Rocket this week? Hey, Jesse. This week, we're going to talk about celebrity journalism, about how it's transformed since the days of yore when everybody had control over their story. And so tune in for that. Excited to hear about it. You know, one of our panelists actually used to write for the tabloids and has worked in uh, what we'll call personal profile management for celebrities. So uh, I'm excited to hear what our panelists have to say about that. Uh, Pop Rocket. Get it wherever you get your podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Brother Ali. His latest album, All the Beauty in This Whole Life, was released last week. How do you think your experience of whiteness is different because this condition means that you have a sort of literal absence of pigmentation than it, than it might be for, for, you know, for me or whatever? Yeah, well, it's hard to know person to person. Um, but, you know, so, yeah, I come from this, from a white family and, um, you know, was taught, embraced. Basically, like, the way to navigate life all comes from the black tradition. And so sometimes people will make assumptions about what what my race must be. And there are times where, like, if I'm with a group of black people and the police are there, then we're black. They they might assume that I'm black sometimes. And it's hard to know what people are thinking that I am. But then I'm also in intimate spaces with black people. So like literally living in their homes and eating their food. And, you know, my family was a broken family that was together some of the time and then wasn't. And then both of my parents died young. My mother of cancer and my father of suicide. My grandfather also died of suicide. The men in my family, that's that's how they die. And so, you know, being in those homes and really exp- at least seeing and, and having proximity to what that's like, although my my experience is not the black experience by any stretch of the imagination. And that really taught me also a lot about how race is, a gen- is, a, is an experience, but their, genetics also does have something to do with that. My body doesn't respond to things necessarily the same way that uh, African body does. Your ex-wife is African-American and your teenage son is African-American. You have a song on your new record talking to him about taking care in the way he presents himself to the world for his own safety. It's a thing that you hear a lot about from African-American parents, especially with sons, but also with daughters. Dear black son, there's people you've never met who fear and hate you for something that you never did. And these people are so self-convinced. Sometimes they pull a trigger called that self-defense. And in that sad insanity, their fear is realer to them than your humanity. But that's their problem, it's not yours. Listen to your pop for a second. These are the confessions of a father brokenhearted who don't know how to pull his only son out of a target. They lied when they said it was the bottom where you started. You were a king long before them ships departed. You were not defined by anybody else's crimes. You don't need to answer for what happens in their minds. You are not confined by their imaginary lines. I wonder if you were self-conscious to talk to your son about this 
in the way that a dad might be self-conscious talking to his daughter about sex. You're having this very charged conversation that you know has to happen, but you're also doing it across this cultural and experiential boundary that you have lived your whole life uh, as a as a white man and your son will live his whole life as a black man. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's really, you know, a, a rich insight and it's real. I don't have a lot of the, I, I don't experience a lot of the hangups that people have with talking about race or with talking about sexuality or with talking about, because of the fact that I've been exposed to so many things and I, my ego or identity isn't tied up in being right. I'm very much aware of the fact that this is a system that was created for us. All of us involved in this whole modern world, this whole project of the quote-unquote new world, this was done for us. And we, we, were, we bought into it, but we didn't have a whole lot of choice in the matter. I treat that just like anything else, uh, where I show up and I'm very honest about what I've experienced, what I believe to be true, how I really feel. You know, my daughter is eight. She had a, a a a coach that is like nice to her in a way that made her uncomfortable. Sometimes he would like pick her up and swing her around and stuff like that. And she was just she's a little Muslim girl, and like she doesn't interact with dudes like that. So it made her feel weird, and she felt bad about the fact that she didn't want to be accusing this man of anything. And so I had a similar talk with my daughter, like you know that's part of why men need to be more conscious about the way that they interact with women. You have the right to feel however you feel. And if something makes you uncomfortable, there's no there's no accusation in that. We're not accusing this guy of being a creep. But what we are saying is, if we really value him, then we have to tell him the truth. If we think he's a creep, then we've got to get him away from children. But if we value him and we think that he just doesn't understand, then we have to tell him the truth. And this is why you have a daddy. If you don't want to say this, I'll say it for you. Or I'll help you say it, you know. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm here with Brother Ali. He's a rapper and an activist. His latest album, All the Beauty in This Whole Life, was released last week. The Muslim community that you belong to is a primarily African-American community. And I wonder what your experience of the greater community of African-American Muslims that you're substantially connected with has been as Islamophobia has skyrocketed over the last 15 years. And and when that Islamophobia has been so deeply connected to basically xenophobia, fear of foreigners and fear of immigrants, and you're part of this community of native, this very Native American f- form of Islam. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's deep. <laughs> it's deep. And what's interesting is that when people came from the from the Muslim world, uh, from the historically Muslim world, so Pakistan, India, uh, the Arab world, a lot of times when they came, first of all, immigration wasn't open to them until after the Civil Rights Bill. So like that bill ushered in the, the, the opportunity for them to come at all. So literally African-American people, black American people are the ones that ushered in that, that ability for them to come at all. But then America chose the most highly advanced and educated people to come. Uh, 
So you get a lot of people coming in with uh, medical backgrounds, with engineering backgrounds, uh, and et cetera. So these people and tech backgrounds. So they come in, you know, high mathematics, highly educated. They come in, go to the best schools and join the upper middle class uh, life. And they largely were very dismissive of African-American Muslims. They didn't see themselves as joining a, a, a Muslim community that existed already. And it was an amazing community, still is. But there was a time when they had their own media. Black Muslims had their own media in Muhammad Speaks newspaper, the largest independent newspaper in circulation at that time. They had uh, their own uh, grocery store chain. They had a a, pu- a private school system across America, the Muhammad University of Islam, that became Clara Muhammad School System, a school system. And when people came from Pakistan and when people came from, you know, wherever, uh, they did not join that community. And so they never really bought into that that you know, legacy and history of how to live under scrutiny and how to live while you're being targeted, how to live when the whole dominant narrative about you is that you're a three-fifths of human being. How do you do that? And how do you do it maintaining a sense of dignity and style and have a smile on your face and, you know, be the most culturally productive people, creative people on in the in the planet? How do you do that? If they would have come and learned that, then this this experience that, that they're going through now would not be the same because they would have known and they would have they could have had they would have had the opportunity to learn. African-American people are are basically saying that what I've experienced is like, yeah, welcome to the world, like welcome to America. This place is set up to divide and conquer people. Uh, you know, poor white people are experiencing it, too. That's I think that's the thing that I that I've been exposed to that I just kind of want to share. So I'm a, I'm, I, I see myself as a reporter. There's no reason that I've been exposed to all this beauty uh, and then have so many people that I love that I that that it's just an honor for me to try to to try and a big responsibility to try to frame it right and to try to describe it right. Well, Ali, I know that we could talk forever. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. But it's always great to get to talk to you, friend. Thank you so much for coming back on the show. Thank you, man. And you're you're such a, a leader and you're such a you're a maven. And I know the people that are really connected to you know that, you know, how much in culture and in, you know, journalism and podcasting and all this stuff, how much of that stuff really comes from you. But anybody that's listening that doesn't know that, you know, you are one of the most important people in this uh, section of the world. I really appreciate it. Brother Ali, everybody. All the beauty in this whole life is available now. He's also touring. We'll have dates and a link for you to buy the new album on our website. Just go to the Bullseye page on MaximumFun.org. Let's take a listen to one more track off that new record. It's called Own Light. You're not using your heart for what hearts are for. They've been trying to shut us down our whole life. I thank God for healing. You ain't got to get me lit. I got my own light. Thank God for listening. Listen, you've been trying to build me up my whole life. Every week we wrap up Bullseye with a pop culture recommendation from me. It's the outshot. Once in a while, I have to kind of talk my three-year-old out of a dream. You can't tell a kid that age that dreams aren't real because to a kid that age, dreams are real. So much of their energy is dedicated to parsing the world, to figuring out what's going on. And that's what dreams are for, reconfiguring and reconsidering our experiences, making ways of understanding the stuff that surrounds us. Dreams are real to kids. They're essential. 
And there's no book that captures that feeling of a dream, that feeling of synthesizing the world, learning to master it, like In Night Kitchen. Have you read that book, Maurice Sendak? Maybe when you were a kid or to your kids? It's not quite as famous as Where the Wild Things Are. I think it's even more amazing. James Gandolfini read it out loud at Sendak's 80th birthday party. Did you ever hear of Mickey? How he heard a racket in the night and shouted, Quiet down there! And fell through the dark, out of his clothes, past the moon and his mama and papa sleeping tight into the light of the night kitchen? The magic of Sendak is how deeply he accesses a child's experience, the way they feel the world. The actual story of In the Night Kitchen is very simple. Our hero, Mickey, falls into this dream world. He finds some bakers, he helps them bake, then he slides back into his bed. But it's so much more than that. The dream world is a city, kind of New Yorkish, but it's also a kitchen. The skyline is built from boxes and cartons and jars of packaged food. Towers and crests are hand mixers and bunches of asparagus. It's a world populated by Sendak's favorite subject, food, and it's built to resemble his own immigrant childhood, full of little marginal references that give it a powerful specificity. Food is Sendak's favorite subject, but it is children's favorite subject, too. Food is a nourishing symbol of familial love. It's a source of pleasure and sustenance. But for little kids, it's also fraught. I mean, I served cheese tortellini the other night. My kids would not touch it. It scared them. As a kid learns to eat, food is both nourishment and danger. Actually, the whole story of In the Night Kitchen is fraught at the edges. Mickey meets three bakers, each one of them a round, mustachioed match for each other and for Oliver Hardy. They have an uncanny quality, dreamlike in that their humanity is blurred. And while they are kind of goofy dunderheads, they're also trying to literally bake Mickey into a cake. I mean, you probably remember what they chant. Milk. In the batter, milk in the batter, stir it, scrape it, make it, bake it. The bakers have toothbrush mustaches, and they're flinging around this cylinder of kosher salt. Sendak's family were Polish Jews. It's hard not to miss the historical resonances. Of course, most kids won't think of the Holocaust. Instead, they'll feel that sickening, pleasing feeling of a sensual threat. It's one that I remember from playing cannibal as a kid. To become food is both terrifying and strangely thrilling. But right in the middle of the steaming and the making and the smelling and the baking, Mickey poked through and said, I'm not the milk, and the milk's not me. I'm Mickey. You know, they say that people censored the book because it shows Mickey naked. But more than that, it shows him being richly, vividly physical, interacting with the world, shaping the world, actually, without any mediation, squirming in his flight suit made out of wet dough, kneading and punching and pounding and pulling. 
Mickey builds himself an airplane, and then he dives physically into the milk, immersing himself completely. Mickey the Milkman dived down to the bottom, singing, I'm in the milk and the milk's in me. God bless milk and God bless me. Mickey's small. He's in a strange and kind of terrifying world, but he leaps right in, literally. He's faced with this baffling problem, these confused, bizarre adults, and he flies and jumps and pours and slides home in triumph. This kid Mickey is the embodiment of the courage and joy of childhood, the spirit of a child running naked through the living room, laughing uncontrollably, screaming a song that he just made up. In our dreams, we collect our thoughts, order the miscellany, learn from what we've seen and felt. Fear, joy, metaphor, fact, they're all equally real in dream world. And to grow, to rise, we put it all together into a coherent picture of ourselves and of the world around us. That's what Mickey does in In the Night Kitchen, and he does it triumphantly. The panel that thrills me the most, even now as a 36-year-old, has Mickey standing proudly naked on top of the milk bottle. His measuring cup is a jaunty hat, and in huge red letters, he lets out a cry. Cock-a-doodle-doo! We could all have a bit more Mickey. That's my outshot. And that's why, thanks to Mickey, we have cake every morning. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye recorded at MaximumFun.org headquarters overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas. Our production fellows at MaximumFun.org are Kara Hart and Nick Liao. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided to us by DJW, the great Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by the Go Team, provided to us by Memphis Industries. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, all of them are available to you to listen to for free at our website, MaximumFun.org, or wherever you grab podcasts. And while you're at it, doing internet stuff, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. Got the best from this week's show and more. News about our guests and the broader world of arts and culture, dumb stuff we've been passing around the office, behind-the-scene pictures, Maybe we'll even tip you off to an interview we've got coming up down the road. This week, I posted a video of a baseball umpire catching it in the junk. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 